One of the biggest subjects on the channel is Jimmy Savile and Kerr Holmes. So we have tried to find the preeminent authorities on that era. And today we have with us prolific author Christian Walmar, who has written a book that details how these Kerr Holmes are set up, especially from that era and the abuses that were able to take place. So thank you for coming on, Christian. Pleasure. Can you tell us what credentials you have to write on that subject matter? Uh, well, uh, I was uh, local government correspondent of uh, The Observer and of a long-defunct newspaper called the London Daily News. And it was while I was writing about uh, social affairs and uh, social work and local authorities that I began to see a bit of a pattern. This was back in the 80s, uh, early 90s. And I began to see a bit of a pattern. What what was all this uh, stories about? There was the case of Frank Beck in Leicester. That was one of the uh, first that emerged. But as I started kind of looking around, there were cases in Lambeth, in Liverpool, in uh, uh, all, in Scotland, all sorts of places where... Uh, children's homes had become a place of abuse. And so I actually got a Joseph Rountree grant to write the book. And I spent kind of 18 months uh, uh, going around the country talking to people. I talked to uh, people actually in prison, uh, a couple of uh, uh, perpetrators indeed. Um, and a lot of social workers, a lot of uh, children's experts. And I put together this uh, book, which... Uh, might have been written a few years ago, but nevertheless stands the test of time in most respects. Um, in that, uh, the, the pattern of, of abuse of institutions becoming, uh, subject to, I suppose, uh, entryism, as it were, by people intent on doing, uh, young people harm, uh, was repeated in several other types of institutions. And the one I looked at was children's homes. But uh, we now kind of have subsequently discovered uh, football, swimming, uh, of course, the entertainment industry, all sorts of other places where there were institutions ripe for uh, people to come in and really be predators uh, on the people in them. So for people watching this, then, we will put a link in the description box below this video to Christian's book. It's out of print, but you can still get the ebook through that. And we'll also put links down there to anything else Christian is doing right now, including his socials. We're, more than half of our viewers in America, they might not have heard of Frank Beck. What was the story there? Uh, Frank Beck was, uh, typically for uh, this book, uh, was uh, a social worker. He was charismatic, very key part of that. A lot of these abusers attract around them kind of people who uh, uh, who uh, want want a kind of father figure or, or somebody to admire. And so they are often very strong characters. He was a, a social worker. Uh, he befriended uh, various uh, children. Uh, he became quite high up in the social services hierarchy in, uh, in Leicester um, and uh, uh, was guilty of abusing uh, several children. He he was jailed uh, and he died uh, actually in prison. Now, there's always a story around here, whether there's rings, you know, and there were some people associated 
uh, with uh, Frank Beck. It's always a question. There's paedophile rings. I think to some extent that's uh, exaggerated. I think most of these perpetrators are individuals and sometimes they might kind of have one or two other people associated with them. But I think the idea of paedophile rings is slightly kind of uh, detracts from the reality of this, that what happened, and certainly happened in the case of Frank Beck and lots of other cases, is that people got jobs inside these institutions, deliberately setting out to find uh, children to abuse. Good grief. I was watching Newsnight's programme on this, and the girl who lived at the Cairn was saying about all these predators all day long they're pulling up to the kids saying you know come for a ride with me i'll buy you a drink you know we'll go and smoke some weed this kind of thing but you're saying it's even more insidious then that predators get hired by the care homes and then they're like in this position of authority whereby they can take advantage of the young people. Yes, now, thankfully, things have improved since the 1980s and 1990s. We must emphasise that, particularly in, in the UK. It, undoubtedly, uh, there aren't those sort of opportunities open. There's, there's police checks, for example, that doesn't actually, of course, pull out everybody because some people won't turn up in the police checks because they've never been known to the police. But nevertheless, that helps. Uh, I think that the standards of, of, of the people they employ are higher, but still not high enough. I think, you know, care home workers are underpaid and undervalued. And therefore, uh, there's still kind of people maybe are not the right standard, but definitely things have improved. The safeguarding issues have improved. It, it would be much more difficult, for example, one standard way that people would abuse would be at the weekends, these people who work there would say, oh, come and, you know, come and have a picnic or let's go for a walk, and they would take them home. And that sort of thing uh, doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. You know, you, you, there'd be much more uh, stricter uh, control. But there is no doubt that in the, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, there were people who deliberately got jobs uh, in order to uh, abuse children. So from your research then, during that time period, what range of abuse was taking place? Well, uh, you know, it was mainly, nearly always men, uh, abusing mostly boys, actually, because more boys were in the care system than girls. There was some abuse of girls, but actually most of the victims that I found uh, out about were uh, actually boys. Uh, and uh, what happened at the time was that there were many more children in children's homes there was a move in the 70s really whereby the whole children's home industry if one can put it like that, the whole children's home industry expanded as social workers believed that young people in poor homes or in you know, where, homes where they were neglected maybe even only slightly neglected would be better off in homes in children's homes in institutions so there were large institutions maybe with up to 50 kids in them uh, that then emerged with not very much uh, supervision with uh, relatively lowly paid rather unskilled people in charge now some of these people were wonderful and some of them you know did life-changing things with kids and, and uh, improved their lives at no end, right? There's no doubt about that. But this whole philosophy of kind of taking in 
more and more kids into care. So, so during the 70s, the number of kids in care kind of rose enormously. And that whole philosophy then created a situation uh, whereby these homes were, were uh, vulnerable to, to predators and, and the kids themselves were, were vulnerable. And it was, it was good intentions, but insufficiently thought through because the homes were not sufficiently supervised um, and uh, the staff were not sufficiently uh, supervised and there wasn't a proper philosophy of what to do with these kids when they reached the age of 16. And that, that's, a, that's a kind of real problem. You know, essentially, age of 16, they still had some care. At the age of 18, they're basically dumped. And so, uh, you know, that again left them vulnerable uh, to potential abusers. So on this channel, we've interviewed multiple victims, people in care homes, people have been trafficked, people from that era. And it seems there's a drug component to this whereby the abusers get the kids on the drugs. They start fiending for the drugs and committing petty crimes. And then if they try to report the abusers, they're just criminalized by now. They're looked at as prostitutes or drug addicts and thieves. And then the courts won't believe them. Did you find that component? Well, you've raised a, 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 a two issues there. Um, one, one, you've raised an important issue about uh, it's not illegal drugs. Actually, alcohol was a big factor in this. And and you know, you give the the kids who are probably you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen a swig or two of whiskey and 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 get them drunk and then uh, go on from there. And and certainly drugs uh, were inducement. But I think the important point you've raised there is the lack of a belief. Uh, of the kids, the, the fact that the authorities uh, did not believe them. And this has gone all the way through from the children's home scandals that I uh, set out in my book in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, um, but also later on the, the sort of abuse of, of young women by uh, groups of, of uh, uh, men uh, who, who, who would then, you know, get girls deliberately again using drugs and alcohol and, and again, the girls would not get believed. And now all the way through this, there's a whole culture of refusing to recognize the reality of these kids' lives, uh, to believe their stories. I think there's a whole attitude amongst the, the, the police and to some extent amongst social services. Of essentially saying, well, these are poor kids, uh, you know, they're prone to tell stories, uh, you know, they've got fairly miserable lives, um, you know, uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, uh, they necessarily have suffered the things that they're talking about. Um, and if they have, well, you know, does it make that much of a difference? I mean, there's a whole kind of laissez-faire kind of culture. And certainly in, in the, the, the bits I've written about, I think that was very important. There was there was almost a culture by which you know, they they were allowing these kids to have sex, kind of either with each other or with with abusers or whatever. And I said, well, you know, they're young kids; they're experimenting. It's all fine. It's kind of post nineteen sixties, you know. Uh, you know, let them all hang out, and it's all cool, man. And and amongst the kind of even the better social workers, they'll they'll kind of allow this. A kind of culture of uh, sort of uh, you know openness of kind of free sex of kind of you know even taking a few drugs does it really matter if they're taking a few drugs you know that there, there was that lack of kind of discipline 
about the way that these kids were treated. I'm not saying that they should have been all locked up and, you know, stopped from doing something, but there should have been more boundaries. And I think that that was part of the culture. So one victim said that years later he was in court on an offence that wasn't um, any offence that would have deemed a life sentence. And he looked up and the guy, the sentencing judge had formally abused him and the judge gave him 30 plus years. Do you think that the legal system is weaponized against victims of abuse? I think that the the legal system did not do its duty properly here. I, th- I think that there were some very good solicitors I talked to who helped a lot of these uh, kids and victims. But essentially, uh, it was, you know, they were up against a, a, a system that was not there to help them. Um, and the, there was this culture of uh, disdain towards uh, all these kids then coming to, to, if they were coming to seek help. And now that changed, I must say, that by the time uh, I was writing the book in the late 90s, early uh, 2000s, they had begun to be believed. Um, and there were so many cases that the culture was changing. And, and I, I do think I'm a bit I'm reasonably optimistic about this, that if if this same sort of series of things happen now, it would be much greatly clamped down upon. And I'm I'm talking here, not just children's home, but things like football coaches, swimming coaches, in America, gymnastics uh, uh, coaches and all that, you know, they could not get away with what these people got away with then. But at the time that the legal system, uh, the whole childcare system, the social services was not geared up to either looking for this sort of thing or helping the victims uh, who uh, were abused under it. So the other side of the coin is the financial side. And on these Newsnight programs I've been watching, from their research, they said, um, on average, to take care of a kid for a month was in the low thousands. They found some cases where councils were billed 28,000 for one month for one kid. Is this a shakedown on the taxpayers? Uh, Yes. I mean, I think uh, as part of all this story, you can also see that there is a, a privatisation issue. I mean, in the old days, or I'm talking now here, the 60s, 70s, uh, all these homes were run either by local authorities or by charities like Dr Bernardo's or whatever. And uh, gradually, just as with old people who, who've been, uh, the care homes have been shifted into the private sector, uh, so the same goes with uh, the the. Sh- small amount of children's homes that still remain. I mean, there aren't, you know, there very much smaller number of children's homes than there, uh, there, there was then. Uh, but these are often, uh, they are quite expensive to run. You have to accept that. You know, you might have a staff of 12 looking after 12 kids or something, you know, because it's 24-7 and so on. And it's, it's, you know, it is an expensive business. But nevertheless, uh, having the profit motive uh, enter into this and having uh, private firms providing uh, this service does seem to be a fundamental mistake you know instead the 
it is better when the local authorities are, are doing it themselves. But uh, one issue, of course, now is that because there are fewer children's homes, you can't really get one local authority having a children's home uh, because there might not be a particular small local authority who wouldn't have enough potential uh, children to put in there. So they have to team up with other local authorities to do it. And at the end of the day, they've gone private instead. And and once you have the private sector entering into it, I think you get a whole different ballgame. Of course, there's some good private companies, as with, with things, and who, who really do care and really do it properly. But you're bound to get some people at the sharp end who really just in it for the money. You said that you'd visited people in prison in, to research your book. What were those stories? Well, uh, because I think the ones that agreed to see me were uh, the ones who were uh, regretted uh, what they'd done and stuff, or they were the, the more kind of vulnerable. But I did meet around half a dozen uh, of these people, and uh, they said themselves that it was the temptation that was there. It was that the structures were not there to stop them. Um, and to some extent, there were you know, a couple of them were victims themselves. Really, they'd been abused themselves. They hadn't had kind of grown-up sexual relations. Um, there were these kids uh, that they were looking after, um, and they grew fond of. You know, there, there, there's 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 kind of mix there. It wasn't kind of all. You know, it wasn't kind of rape necessarily. It was you know sometimes quite consensual, but it was completely inappropriate. You shouldn't have a, a 40-year-old social worker, you know, having sex with a 13-year-old boy, you know, just completely inappropriate. But it wasn't kind of, you know, aggressively uh, an attack as, as, you know, whereas at the other end, there were some, some of them, but they didn't tend to be the ones who I met. Uh, so the ones I met were, were regretful, uh, were going to do their time. And, and, and I did keep in touch with a couple of them after they left and they wrote letters and said it was helpful to talk to me and, and whatever. And I sent them copies of the book and, and, you know, they were rehabilitated. But I think at the other end, there were some, you know, much more evil uh, people who, uh, uh, you know, were just in it for uh, effectively sex and violence. With the odds stacked against the victims then ever having a day in court... Did those particular prisoners explain to you how they got caught, how it got that far? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, it, it tended to be amongst the ones I taught who, that they confessed their crimes themselves. I mean, they, they, they would kind of, uh, you know, accept or, uh, you know, if somebody complained, they would then accept it straight away. I mean, because the big thing about this is denial, of course. You know, who do you believe? And, and, you know, particularly, um, you know, amongst the, the, the religious homes, the Catholic ones in particular, you know, you'd complain against a priest and they wouldn't necessarily do anything about the priest or they would move the priest to somewhere else, right, where they would have another chance of abusing. So uh, what was different about the, the ones I talked to, I think, was that they accepted that what they had done was wrong and that was a start, whereas, of course, a lot of the victims... Uh, never got that uh, sense of belief. Now it must be said that towards the the the, the, the uh, late nineties, two thousands, the police did start to take a very active role in this. And I, for my book, I spoke to uh, several police uh, operations, 
uh, in particular one in Liverpool where there's a big police operation uh, uh, looking at you know uh, literally dozens of, of potential uh, homes where there might have been uh, uh, attacks or, or uh, uh, sexual uh, abuse. Uh, and those trials went on for several years afterwards. And so they, they, you know, they, some of them did get their day in court. Uh, and I actually attended a, a few of these court hearings, which often ended up with, you know, the bail application or a, a remand or whatever. So these poor uh, kids who were by then in their 30s, you know, would kind of have to uh, come out uh, again and again to, to hear it. And there's something important to say here. A lot of these uh, kids who were no longer kids by the time I was talking to them in their 20s and 30s, a lot of them had by then committed some offences themselves, right? You know, because these are damaged people. Um, and that sometimes made their stories less, to a jury, less credible. But if you manage to get three or four of them together and, and, and testify against the same abuser, then they'd have a much better chance of a conviction than if there was just one. So again, so there were some of these solicitors who were working very hard to kind of pull together. And it, it's difficult, you know, sometimes accusations that they taint the evidence by, by uh, you know, looking for other victims and then telling them the story. So they can't do that. They absolutely mustn't do that. They must kind of find potential uh, victims and then get them to tell their story without kind of uh, leading them on so that you don't taint the evidence. So it's quite a complicated uh, process. But it must be said that most of the trials, all the trials I went to, um, the uh, people were successfully prosecuted at the end and, and did end up uh, in jail and um, often for quite uh, long periods. That's because there were usually multiple victims. What is the aftercare for the victims then when these convictions come down and they're finally believed... Um, not a lot, probably. I mean, some uh, some local authorities are better than others, but uh, I think there was a great sense of relief, though. I mean, I I, I, I do think that it's a, a you know epiphany for them, you know, that that, that they have some burden kind of uh, removed from them. And and as I say, some of these people are quite damaged people. Some some of them, some of them have had perfectly normal lives, and then kind of you know in their forties or something they. They might have a breakdown, or they might get, you know, uh, a tearful over something, and it's all that, that that memory coming back. I'm sure you've talked to people like that, but so it is very important uh, to continue pursuing uh, these uh, abusers. It's very important for uh, the victims uh, themselves. I think it's important for society because often you sometimes get the attitude, oh, well, can we chase this up? It's 20 years ago, it's 30 years ago. Is it really worthwhile? And the answer is, I'm afraid so, that it really is. It, it's worth it in terms of stopping it in the future. It's worth it in terms of the victims themselves. Um, and it's worth it in terms of society. These people cause, you know, uh, committed heinous crimes. Um that, uh, you know, in many cases wrecked uh, people's lives. There's a lot of these people who didn't survive this process, you know, committed suicide or, or, or died of alcoholism or whatever. So I have no compunction to say that, you know, yes, it might cost quite a lot of money. Uh, and 
the other side of this, that sometimes people say, oh, well, they make up these stories, you know, to get compensation and stuff. And I heard that quite a, that argument quite a lot. And I can tell you that, you know, you'd really be earning your crust if you kind of uh, try to earn, get compensation for things that uh, didn't happen to you. You'd really have to be very convincing liar. You'd have to go through a whole lot of process. And, it, you know, for the amount of compensation you were get, it really wouldn't be worth it. I mean, most, you know, of course, one or two people might make up uh, uh, stories, but I tell you, the greater part of these uh, stories are to be believed. And indeed, it's the other way around. That there's hundreds of victims out there uh, of some of these people who, who really were mass predators uh, who have never come forward and uh, who... Uh, um, whose stories will have been uh, completely forgotten and the predators will have, uh, perpetrators will have got away with it. It's interesting what you said about the victims having the day in court and being believed and the psychological boost that gives. I recently watched Filthy Rich, which is about Jeffrey Epstein. If you don't know if you've seen I've it. I've seen it, yeah. But it was really powerful when they said, finally, this judge just acknowledged, you know, we weren't treated like child prostitutes and criminalized like they had been in the beginning. Finally, the judge acknowledged them as decent human beings who'd been through this horrific experience and how that benefited them mentally. Yes, and the same with Weinberg. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, the, the case in all these. I mean, you know, the problem with the Jimmy Savile thing, of course, is that none of this came to light uh, while he was still alive. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, certainly his reputation has been wrecked but none of the uh, people abused, and there must have been dozens, if not hundreds, uh, have been able to see him kind of squirm in a court. And and that's the whole, uh, you know, that is very important to them, you know, uh, to, to actually see uh, that the perpetrator uh, has been punished. I mean, like the, the gymnastics guy in, in, in Chicago, you know, you, you see him in court kind of, uh, looking contrite and kind of broken and sentenced to, I think they got sentenced to 700 years or something in jail. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that must have done a lot of, uh, of people, a lot of good. Just, just that picture of him kind of sitting there, kind of grim faced, knowing that he's paying for his crime. So, uh, no, I think this whole thing is, is, is worthwhile and, uh, is valid. And, uh, you know, I welcome, uh, programs like yours to, that, that keep this, uh, in the public eye, because it's all too easy to, to think that this is this is just an awful experience. We should forget it. it's all in the past and whatever. It's not, and we have to stop it. I, I do think there's less of it now because of in, you know the institutions are better uh, able to to withstand this. But nevertheless, we have to be vigilant. You mentioned the Catholic Church. I've watched Sins of My Father, and I was flabbergasted that the victims' families were told, you know this would be handed over to the authorities or the priest would be disciplined and this would never happen again. And they simply moved the guy 20, 30 miles away where it happened again. And if it did get into the legal system, they paid all this money to have the highest-priced lawyers to get these guys off. So what would motivate the Catholic Church to perpetuate paedophilia in that manner? Uh, I think it's protecting the institution. That's the case with all these uh, stories, actually, is that the, the protecting institution, whatever institution it is, whether it's kind of Crew Alexandra Football Club, 
which is a football club in 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 uh, northwest England, uh, or whether it's uh, you know the, the swimming coaches, or whether it's uh, uh, children's home and local authorities, uh, you know whoever's uh, doing this, there's people who want to protect the reputation, and of course the Catholic Church has been you know fundamentally damaged by it. I mean, in Ireland, the whole, you know, my, my Irish friends tell me that the this child abuse cases in uh, Ireland have completely transformed the whole of society, that, that the church is no longer uh, believed or trusted in the way it was a generation ago. And that's how come, you know, Ireland has voted for gay marriage, it's voted for, for uh, abortion rights and, and so on, completely counter- to what the Catholic Church might think. And, uh, you know, it's, similarly, it's been damaged in, in other areas, you know, in, 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 uh, in America, in, in uh, you know, Boston, in, in it's all sorts of other places, you know, prominent uh, bishops have been exposed. And uh, so I think it was a mistaken belief that, you know, we can keep all this quiet, we can, we can retain it within ourselves, and also, I think the culture that I spoke about earlier, this culture of disdain towards the victims, that, uh, you know, these altar boys or choir boys or whatever, well, you know, we're trying to help them in general. And, uh, you know, they, they're kind of uh, poor boys that, you know, the Catholic Church is welcoming to its fold. Um, and, we, you know, they're just a refusal to recognise that, uh, you know, these are real people who have suffered uh, greatly. And, of course, the Catholic Church has been made worse. I mean, other churches have had these sort of scandals, but the Catholic Church is made much worse by the celibacy of the priests, I think, where, where, which is, of course, sort of an anti-human kind of uh, requirement and uh, necessarily kind of uh, makes this sort of uh, abuse more likely. Um but again, I mean, I think things have got better. I, you know, the Pope has began to recognise this. I mean, not sufficiently, but uh, began to recognise it. And things, you know, again, I think that within the Catholic Church, it would be less possible for abusive priests to operate. And I think they would now be uh, defrocked rather than sent somewhere else, one would hope. Uh, so, so again, I feel quite positive about uh, the fact that Again, the more we discuss these things, the more that they are uh, brought out into the open, the more we recognise the mistakes of the past, the better it will be. So early on in this interview, you mentioned that predators were attracted to be employed by care homes so they could access the kid kids. We were recently into a guy, um, Kevin Arnett, and he said that predators are attracted to the Catholic Church because they know the whole resources of the church will be brought behind them to protect them from being prosecuted for these crimes. Have you heard anything along those lines? Um, I haven't heard quite that story, but uh, you know, some of the uh, children's homes I, I, I looked at were uh, run by uh, uh, priests, and uh, there's there's no reason to think that some of the people who came in to work there, and some of them who were, maybe came as priests saw it as an opportunity to uh, abuse uh, children. I mean, it, you know, it was almost a perfect environment, really, kind of quite close communities, uh, often orphaned kids or, or kids who had no, no parents. 
um, uh, institutions that were often in quite secluded places. Um, you know, this is particularly true in Ireland, where where you know there were. Uh, you know, if, if a young woman got pregnant, uh, the baby was taken away and 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 sent to one of these uh, institutions. But also in in uh, in in the UK, there were institutions like that. Um, so uh, it's quite credible that uh, uh, some of these people uh, came in uh, deliberately. It certainly happened in lots of local authority children's homes. And I'm sure it happened uh, in in other institutions in 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 the same way. It, it just it was the whole uh, openness of institutions to this form of abuse that is at the centre of this scandal. Oh, it's just mind blowing to think that you got the worst of both worlds: Catholic run, care, kids care homes, and then the priests can just go in and access and. Get those fancy lawyers to get them to walk scot free. It's it's absolutely. Oh, yeah, I'm, some of them haven't. Fortunately, some of them <sighs> have ended up in uh, uh, in jail, and I'm very uh, thankful of that. But I'm sure that a lot got away with it. Uh, there was I uh, there, there was I think a tendency sometimes to send priests to sort sort of live out their naughty priests, you know, uh, as they were quote unquote uh, sent to kind of particular. Uh, old priests' homes, as it were, old care homes, where these defrocked priests or these kind of uh, perpetrators would spend the rest of their days together in kind of uh, uh, small communities where they were basically being told to stay there because they'd, they'd... But that was all done secretly. You know, it was all done under wraps rather than kind of openly in order to protect the institution. And that, But what's interesting, Sean, is that you look at history... Uh, throughout and institutions that kind of try and hide this sort of thing and institutions that are secretive uh, and and try to be enclosed at the end of the day their own contradictions uh, uh, emerge and and they fall apart and and that's to some extent which happened to large chunks of the of the uh, catholic church where uh, you know they 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 they're, they're very kind of uh, raison d'etre has been undermined and um, as a result they have become much less influential and one can see that, that in many countries across the world the, 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 the Catholic Church has been deeply damaged by this and, and will never be the same again Do you think some of these priests then when they become too hot to handle in the more advanced countries would gravitate towards countries with less human rights, poorer countries, Vietnam, Cambodia, places like that. There are some uh, instances of that, actually, of of uh, uh, priests kind of uh, uh, moving to uh, uh, other countries, um, uh, not necessarily officially, but but uh, and I, you know, there, there's definitely a move of uh, you know some of these uh, abusers escape into countries where uh, it might be easier to get access uh, to uh, children. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to see how you can actually stop that because those countries don't have the same kind of procedures and uh, safeguards uh, that we do. Um, although, again, those things are improving, I think, across the world. Um, uh, in places like like Thailand and, and the Philippines and wherever, I think are becoming more aware that uh, you know these Westerners who turn up 
uh, might not be all uh, uh, as as kind of uh, sunny as they seem. Um, so uh, I think in 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 all uh, across the piece, you know, things are largely you know have got better, uh, but there's still a long way to go. So you said that the church set out to protect the establishment, but in doing so, it has self-sabotaged. If you were the Pope, how would you remedy this? Well, I think there's still a long way for the Pope to go. Uh, I think there has to be much greater recognition of what's happened. Uh, You know, he's set up various kind of small inquiries and stuff, but they're really, you know, he really ought to, once, uh, uh, you know, at Easter or some time, you know, when there's these kind of big kind of gatherings, he ought to make a speech kind of recognising the, the sins of the past, which don't just stretch back to our lifetimes. <laughs> you know, I suspect they stretch back an awful uh, long uh, further into, into history. And uh, above all, what what the, the precondition for all these uh, institutions is secrecy? That 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 is the thing that means they are at risk, um, and it is openness uh, that that kind of ensures that uh, this sort of thing doesn't happen. And the Catholic Church has a long way to go to to be more open, to be more accepting of of its faults. Have been. Uh, you know, more open to challenge. You know, there's there's still a lot of places in the world. You know, I, I go to Italy a lot. You know, where what the local priest says goes. You know, and 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 there's kind of no questioning, and and that's so so secrecy and authoritarianism are the kind of uh, precursors to uh, uh, places where abuse can take place. Do you think if priests were allowed to marry, whether women or men? that energy would then be channeled into an adult fashion and it uh, would dissipate. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. And, and the, the, the Pope has not really challenged this, has he? Uh, I think he's allowing some marriages in places where they find it difficult to get priests uh, as parts of the world. But, I mean, it is a nonsense in this day and age where, uh, you know, we accept that, one of basic human needs is is uh, our sex drive, and uh, you know it, it's it's almost asking for trouble to to have uh, priests forced to be uh, celibate. Um, and I think that's why there's been few of these cases in the Protestant Church, where where you know there have been the odd uh, scandal, but, but but much less so. Um, and uh, this enforced celibacy is. Uh, undoubtedly responsible for uh, part of that, that culture. And it's astonishing that, you know, by 2020, that has still not been challenged. And I must say, if there's Catholics kind of listening to watching this, uh, you know, they should kind of be pushing for uh, their church to, to recognise that uh, celibacy is a recipe for problems. So do you think that the more sex drive is suppressed the more immorally it will manifest. Yes, it's not. It's not only the Catholic uh, religionists. There's other other religions where uh, you know uh, priests uh, are in a position of power and uh, uh, turn out to uh, be abusers. But it's made much worse by the fact that they can't marry, and uh, I, I I can't see 
the advantage of sticking to to that policy. So let's hope that one of the things that does come out over the next few years is uh, a recognition of this. I, I think the two go together, actually. I think if they recognize the problems of the past and and what's caused it, they would see that that celibacy is part of it, and so therefore they would they would more likely uh, um, uh, change the rules and open up. Are we enjoying the podcast? This is a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays. Gear up for the season ahead with quality shades built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarized shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an unrivaled product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn, aren't they, Gem? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And if you're into winter sports, the quick swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low light environments that's not all shady rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements if you lose or break your pair even on day one they told us they will send you a brand new pair no questions asked were your shady rays with confidence because they have your back long after you purchase if you don't love your shady rays, <laughs> exchange for a new pair or return them for free in 30 days. There's no risk when you shop. The team always has your back with personal and fast support. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving you an amazing deal for the season. Go to shadyrays.com and use the code Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. Go to ShadyRays.com and use code Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you're watching on YouTube, links in the description box. Thanks for supporting our sponsor, Shady Rays. As we move over to our Savile questions then, what's your thoughts on elite deviants? Uh... You know, I mean, people who are uh, in positions of uh, prominence, who who, uh, uh, who who abuse their their position. Uh, well, it's undoubtedly the case that uh, uh, people uh, who are in the habit of having everything obeyed, of having a lot of flunkies around, uh, you know, are potentially in a, a position. Uh, to uh, abuse i wouldn't say that you know everybody uh in those sort of positions necessarily does so um but again it's it's uh much easier to uh get away with it and there's also there's also that people who become used to just uh being obeyed all the time or or having people listen to them uh, are likely to end up believing that they are better than other people. And you see that with prime ministers. I mean, I think, you know, Tony Blair, a man who did a lot of good things, by the end of, uh, after 10 years in power, you know, he, he believed his own kind of rhetoric. And, and you see that with with uh, other prime ministers as well. They, 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 they end up believing that, 
you know, they, they, in the divine right of kings, as it were, that they really are kind of, you know, people who start reasonably humbly. And I mean, you see this with dictators across the world, don't you? Uh, that, you know, they might start off with intentions that are, are kind of okay, but they end up believing that they are just better or more important than other people. So, so that's, that's, I think, the roots of, uh, people like, uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, Savile, uh, or, or Barry Bannon, the, the, the football coach or other people who, who end up kind of, in, in positions where they are able to abuse just because they're in positions of power. At the height of Jimmy Savile's fame then, when Jim will fix it, was all the rage. What were your thoughts on him back then, and did you suspect anything? Um, I always thought he was a bit odd. I thought, I mean, I you know, I was an outsider, and I thought, you know, it's strange. He, he's not married, and he's... Uh, uh, you know, very close to his mum and uh, had this kind of completely weird manner about him. It was only a bit later that, uh, a bit later than after Jim will fix it, in fact, you know, that I, and when I was a a journalist on the independent newspaper and stuff that I I began to, I I did kind of hear rumours. We all heard rumours. I mean, all of us journalists heard rumours about Jimmy Savile. That that is kind of slightly shocking, but it is true that you know we we were there were a lot of suspicions about him and about you know certain other people uh, that uh, you know they were up to uh, no good. And but it is with the benefit of hindsight. But when you watch, particularly Top of the Pops, which is this big pop show. Uh, that that you know, went out once a week with the, all the latest hits and stuff, and years and years, and it had different presenters every week, and 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 Jimmy Savile would be there, and you know he always had his arm around some young woman or some boy. There's or, a video on it, YouTube yeah. on top of the pops where he's got his hand up a girl's skirt. Yeah, yes, no, I jumps. mean I know, I know. I mean it, you, he's actually doing it, and and there was always something kind of kind of. Uh, odd about him but but uh it is extraordinary that it was never properly challenged and and there were certain people in the bbc who did either know about it or had were the source of complaints about him and and uh didn't didn't do anything but it does i think it demonstrates all the same things that happened in the children's homes that i wrote about that that you know he was in a position of power he um certainly did things like visit children's hospitals that were deliberately kind of to give it not because he was a nice bloke being a you know being a, i mean he worked as a as a as a porter in in hospitals deliberately which gave him lots of access to patients on the own picking up their old cups of tea and stuff and and it was a perfect kind of dis- i mean it was absolutely the same as you know, a care home worker getting getting a job in a children's home uh, to have access to kids. So it was it was all kind of uh, completely uh, deliberate. So how did this weirdo appearing in public? He wasn't funny, uh, you know. He tried to be funny, but he had this ridiculous laugh. Uh, he looked weird, um, and and yet because he had a bit of the gift of the gab, he uh, you know became this megastar. So there's an assortment of rumours then, other than him preying on teenagers, ranging from his tastes to the mentally ill, 
prisoners, uh, hospital patients, like you mentioned. D- and, disabled and, and, people. Disabled people and even corpses. What are your thoughts on those rumours? Oh, I'm, I'm, I've, I've got no doubts that uh, uh, they could all be substantiated. I mean, it, here's a seriously strange person. Um, and you know what? Because you get away with it, people like that, if they get away with it, they uh, they sort of dare, do more and more daring things. There's no doubt that part of it was, I mean, some of the things he did, which we do know about, of sort of, you know, being, you know, 10 minutes inside with a a, a patient and immediately abusing her, you know, and, and then leaving, uh, are so risky uh, that you know that that part of the frill is, is, uh, is, is, is doing it. And I think it's not really about sex. It really isn't. And, and that's, you know, the case, in fact, with some of the, uh, perpetrators I talked to in prison who don't really talk about it about the sex they sort of uh, they talk about love they talk about needs they talk about uh, all sorts of things that are not really about sex and I think with Jimmy Savile uh, you know there's something kind of rather androgynous and unsexual about him and it wasn't about sex it's the fact that he could do this you know yeah in interviews he always joked about not knowing what love meant yeah. The predators that you interviewed, what what did they mean by they were motivated by love? Well, uh, sometimes they uh, actually would get to know some child, and uh, I mean, child, you know, teenager. Really, we're not talking of, of very young children here. Most, most, or nearly all the victims I'm talking about were teenagers. Really, you know, um, and you get situations where uh, they would take them out, they would have a picnic with them or whatever, and, and it, it, you know, it, it didn't start as sex. It wasn't that they would kind of look at this person and want to have sex with them. It, it would be that they would have a relationship with them. And, uh, you know, sometimes quite a genuine relationship, uh, uh, but that it would then turn into to, uh, sex and, and essentially sexual abuse because of the age of the victim. So uh, um, it's a more confused story. I, I do think it's a mistake just to think as, uh, that this is always about uh, aggressive, violent, rape-type sex. It's not. Um, and sometimes I think, and this sometimes makes it worse for the victim, that sometimes they are... Uh, themselves uh, motivated a bit by affection for the person who is uh, you know has groomed them and and sometimes even grooming is uh, it's not even done deliberately that uh, some of the perpetrators i talked to you know were generally fond of the of the kids that they were and uh, that they were abusing and didn't actually think of it as uh you know purely sex they thought about it as as love quite genuinely even though you know <laughs> One had to tell them that you know this isn't the case. <laughs> uh, you know it's not appropriate, but and they they kind of knew that. But it it so it's it's much more uh, complex. Um, just to say, at the other end of the scale, I, I used to work for an organisation called Release in the nineteen seventies, which uh, was uh, helped people with their legal problems in 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 uh, West London, and we were the post restaurant 
address for an organization called the Pedophile Information Exchange, which I'm sure you've uh, come across. Um, and uh, and when I got there, it was a collective. And when I, you know, it meant that there was no boss, right? But when I got there, I said, who is this funny bloke who turns up every Tuesday to pick up the mail? And I said, oh, it's, it's Pi, you know, Pedophile Information Exchange. And I said, what does that mean? They said, oh, well, they're kind of to do with kids and stuff. And I said, um, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Let's have somebody come along and talk to us about what, you know, what this organization does and see whether it's a good idea to have them as our postal address, you know, because we get money from the home office and, you know, it might be a bad idea to have that. So we got this bloke along and he was literally a bloke in a dirty raincoat. I mean, literally. And he, you know, we asked him, and famously, I remember, this was probably 1974, and I famously I asked him, you know, what do you think the age limit for sex, sorry, 1976, what what do you think the age limit for sex should be? You know, should should babies, you know, should you? And he said, oh, yeah, no, I don't think there should be any sort of age limit at all, you know. Uh, um, you know, so we said, oh, it's, it's okay to have sex with a, uh, you know, four year I said, yeah, yeah, you're, you're depriving children of their sexuality by not allowing them to have sex, right? So uh, we booted them out, right? Uh, I was rather proud of that. And a few weeks later, they got exposed in the Sunday People or the News of the World or whatever. And, and I saved our organization because if they'd still had our address, it would have been the end of our organization. But what I'm saying here is that the people I met later who were uh, either vict- uh, uh, who were uh, perpetrators of uh, these were not those sort of, they were not the same group of, of of it, it, you can't really define them as paedophiles quite so easily. They, they liked, you know, uh, uh, teenagers. They had sex with some of them, whatever. But they were not kind of your classic paedophile. That was that wasn't necessarily what was driving. They certainly wouldn't want to have sex with four year olds. So this was a different group, and I think I think that's quite quite important. I mean, there are some, you know. I, mean, I think the the guy from the paedophile information exchange was was the most shocking person I've ever met in my life. Actually, when he said that, I mean, I you know, it's forty years later and I remember it to this day. The whole scene of him saying, "Oh, you know, it's okay to have sex with four year olds." What was the purpose or goal of the paedophile information exchange? Well, they were a, a, sort of what the name implies. It was kind of they could exchange uh, uh, information about kids about presumably pictures um presumably uh you know where you could maybe uh access some of these kids i mean that it was uh you know they they said they were harmless they all they only exchanged information whatever i think that's completely untrue i mean i think they they abused kids uh um and they would also campaign as a as a these were the the mid-70s where you know you were, the gay the gay liberation front was kind of there you know abortion rights were becoming a big issue and so they would say well you know what about the rights of people who like children who love children you know um and uh they uh were were kind of pushing for those rights and they were trying to i mean their attempt to to be our uh, postal address was a deliberate attempt to try and merge in with kind of the, the wider alternative movement uh, and to, to get themselves accepted in the same way that the Gay Liberation Front or women fighting for abortion rights or people campaigning for Nicaragua or whatever uh, were campaigning. They, would, they were trying to legitimise uh, 
their uh, role and um, and their predilections. Um, but uh, you know, fortunately, I, I think they didn't they didn't get very far. But there was no doubt they were trying trying to to uh, uh, enter kind of a wider world of alternative politics. I've written about this at some length. You can find articles on my website uh, about this. I've, I've, I've written a few times kind of quite some length about uh, their attempts at kind of uh, uh, and the fact that uh, they largely, they largely um, uh, disappeared. There was a guy called Tom O'Carroll uh, who I later, many years later when I published this book, in fact, uh, had an uh, interview with him on television where he was still kind of arguing that um, you know, this didn't do any harm to the kids. That uh, you know, studies showed that it was okay that that people who'd uh, indulged uh, uh, had been he wouldn't call them, but victims of uh, paedophile uh, attacks were not harmed by this. And also, I mean, they were still arguing it kind of, but but he ended up being jailed, and uh, um, you know, the, the, nobody would now argue that today. But but it was all part of a a, a kind of wider. Flowering of all sorts of movements, some of which were perfectly legitimate, uh, like battling for gay rights or, or women's rights or black rights or whatever, and some of which were uh, completely uh, off the wall. You said they were trying to become a political force. Did they have any politicians amongst their membership? Not that we know of. And uh, uh, I think that most <laughs> their very name was a bit of a giveaway. I mean, calling themselves the Pedophile Information Exchange was probably not the cleverest move. If they'd called themselves Kitty Rights or something, they might have got a bit further. Uh, but uh, there were rumoured to be some politicians who, who were there. They had about seven or 800 members. Um, and, and they had a newsletter that, that uh, was sent round, um, mainly with kind of pictures of young uh, children kind of and and so on um but uh they they did get exposed but they they survived they 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 existed for a few years before they got exposed and once they got exposed they then went underground and um uh, essentially disappeared before we go back to several then just touching on what you said about the repentant predators you said that they felt they were genuinely in love sometimes do you think that is a process of justifying and sugarcoating the grooming? In some cases, undoubtedly. But in some cases, uh, I mean, I do remember uh, a meeting guys in a prison near Nottingham, um, uh, you know, who I think had genuine feelings and uh, which were returned. And, and there's no getting away. There's a spectrum here. You know, uh, again, there's a spectrum and it's, you know, you have to look at it on a case by case basis. I mean, there, you know, there were some who who generally uh, thought that you know they were having a a, a a a relationship that was beneficial to both sides. Um, and uh, as I say, some of the victims themselves might be taken in by that to some extent, and and uh, and. Uh, that's a great problem that sometimes they enjoyed the sexual aspect of it as well. And and that then is a source of great guilt afterwards. I'm sure you've talked to, 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 to victims in, in that situation. But, uh, 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 so, uh, and, but in some cases, undoubtedly, uh, they would justify it and said, Oh, well, they liked it, you know, uh, 
as even kind of rapists sometimes say, oh, well, they liked it really, you know. And, and you know, so, so uh, again, Sean, I think it's quite important. I think you must understand this from your experiences. You know, you must have met quite a lot of these sort of people um, that uh, there is a wide spectrum you know, from, from purely evil kind of ghastly people <laughs> beat of information exchange to some uh, people who are just uh, very sad individuals um, who may well have had a relationship with another very sad individual uh, and and to some extent some of it might have been kind of helpful to both sides of it but uh, so both sides of the relationship uh you know even even but 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 in law it, it's it's wrong and and rightly so you know you you should not be a social worker uh in your 30s or whatever having relationships with with 15 year old kids of either sex uh and uh uh that's it and and, and i think that's right to, that that's illegal but it doesn't mean that some of these stories aren't very very sad and for people watching this, there are two people we've interviewed on the channel. I'll put the links in the description box below this video about all the different types of predators. Kareen Housebout, FBI-trained profiler of, of pedophiles and child killers. We've interviewed her twice, and also Dr. Sarah Good. It's called in, Inside the Minds of Pedophiles. So if you guys watching this want much more details about all the different types, those links are down there in the description box below this video. But I do warn you, um i've interviewed you know biggest baddest gangsters and all kinds of tough guys have been in prison and i was never i never came out of a podcast more rattled than after listening to dr sarah good um do inside the minds of pedophiles i i almost threw up multiple times it's it's, it's horrible harrowing stuff okay so um ne next question with savile the sunday mirror and other papers heard stories about savile over the years victims reported their stories but editors always chose not to run the stories. Savile was quick to threaten legal action, was adept at playing the media. From your experience working in the press, do you have any knowledge of media investigations into Savile or knowledge of similar cases where the press had to sit on a story for fear of being sued? Um, well, we were often scared of being sued. Uh, and... Uh... Uh, you know, I did some quite investigative stuff uh, when I worked on the independent newspaper, um, and you know the lawyers uh, uh, they they don't they didn't have a final say. The editors have the final say, but but you know if the lawyers strongly counsel against doing something, uh, you have to uh, accept that. With Jimmy Savile, uh, I mean, yes, he was litigious, and so it's difficult to. Uh, then actually uh, go right up against him. He was very famous. Uh, he was, uh, you know, quite powerful. Um, uh, so I, I do... I, Sean, I partly understand this, but actually I still wonder about it. You know, that... Because I did, even on The Independent, when I was there in the, in the, in the, in the 90s, there were stuff coming up about uh, Jimmy Savile, and and people people would kind of occasionally mention it. So so clearly they heard rumors rumors about these stories, um, and you have to devote quite a lot of resources to it. I mean, you you have to, for example, I mean, look at the uh, the Chicago, sorry, the uh, Boston story of the the priest that was then the film, you know, and and. Uh, you you then look at that film and you see that it 
took them, you know, a long, long time to nail that priest, you know, literally years. Literally, they had to wait till they found a, a really good witness and so on. So some of it is just uh, lack of resources. But even then, I do wonder just why nobody quite had the guts to do it. I, and I suppose, uh, you know, did they, did they, you know, were they prevented from doing so somehow? Okay, let's imagine what would, you know, the front page story would be very, very big. You know, uh, Jimmy Stavell in sex scandal, you know, uh, witnesses, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, 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 it would have been a really, really big story. Um, uh, you know, bigger probably than any other uh, sex scandal story we've had. I mean, Harvey Weinberg, my, you know, but uh, um, so I don't know if um, it was just the sheer size of the story or whether uh, whether or whether it was the lawyers who just kind of absolutely were were, were warning about it and. Or whether it was uh, the power that Savile could wield. I, I think, particularly for your American uh, viewers, uh, I'm, I'm trying to kind of think of who. Uh, sorry, Harvey Weinstein. Um, I've been calling him Weinberg. Harvey Weinstein. Um, Bill Bill Cosby got away with it for a long time, didn't Bill he? Bill Cosby got away with it, yes, but eventually got. I, Jimmy Savile's a bigger Bill Cosby, yeah, probably bigger actually in a in way. the UK. In yeah. the UK, probably bigger. I'm I'm thinking, you know, Robert Redford might be somebody. I'm not saying that. <laughs> be careful, your lawyers. I'm not saying anything wrong. I'm just saying the size of the the kind of uh, uh, the actor Kevin Costner. I don't know some some really big kind of. Uh, you know, a list Hollywood actor, and even a bit bigger than that. Even you know, uh, um, he he was he was a really powerful character uh, in, on the TV every you know every week or or several times a week, and um, you know it would have taken a, a lot of guts to do it. So Savile was a friend of Margaret Thatcher. When Charles and Di had marital problems, he was brought in as a marriage guidance counsellor by the royal family. How does a you know a guy from the north, very humble roots, disc jockey, rise to such associations? It's personality, Sean. It it you know he he did have a uh, you know. Uh, I mean, as I said, I don't think he was particularly funny, but he had a, a, a certain wit about him. Uh, uh, I don't think one could say charm, really. He wasn't very charming. It was, like psychopaths are described as charming. Yeah, like that. yeah. I suppose, I suppose, you know, uh, you know, maybe he made people laugh a bit with his stupid laugh himself and his kind of whole, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, I didn't know that actually, that he was actually asked at a marriage council. You can't, it, it, I mean, you can't imagine anybody worse, really. <laughs> I mean, well, Princess Diana wrote that he was creepy. She found him very creepy. Good for her. Yes. <laughs> I'm not surprising. Uh, she got it, you know, for once, Princess, as usual, Princess Diana got it better than, uh, Charles or his mother. Uh, it, I mean, it, it I, th I think you maybe, you have to understand uh, that uh, actors, people in the entertainment industry jump a class or two, don't they? I mean, they might come from humble roots, 
but uh, they, they they actually jump out. You only have to look at the Beatles, who are kind of like royalty now, or Cilla Black, you know, one of our great uh, uh, singers, uh, who, you know, became just a household name, and she was on all sorts of TV programs, dating programs, and, as well as being a, a, a singer. That that people in the entertainment industry are kind of déclassé in a way. They, they, they jump at, you know, we have this entrenched class system in the UK. Uh, that uh, you know, generally people can't escape from. But the one escape, and I think this is true in America as well, that that uh, you know, real uh, stars kind of get out of of uh, of their class, and so so they then become part of the the red carpet elite, um, and that's maybe why they that uh, you know the royal family were being dumb enough to work out the marital problems of somebody who should never have married that young woman anyway <laughs> that's another whole story but it wasn't uh, it wasn't an issue that could be solved by counseling it was an issue that, that should never have taken place for the first time because he was as we know uh consorting with somebody else all the way through but um you know that's that so i suppose it was like a bit of kind of uh, pulling uh, Savile out as a bit of a figurehead, wasn't it? It was a kind of, you know, sh- sh- somebody who was kind of very famous. Oh, we're showing we're doing something about this. So I can understand the red carpet effect and Savile mesmerising the masses, being on the TV all the time. To waltz into Buckingham Palace, whereby there's a royal protection police force who would investigate, you know, your background and they would have probably been aware of the accusations against him. Why would they allow the royals, top royals, to associate with someone who had such claims against him? Yes, that's a good question. I I can only think that they didn't investigate him sufficiently because I think if they had, they would have come across that. And, you know, remember, he became Sir Jimmy Savile, didn't he? You know, uh, so he was knighted. So he was uh, in and out. And he was in the in Buckingham Palace. He was a friend of Prince Charles's, wasn't he? I mean, he yeah. actually was a friend, quote, unquote. You know, like that. they actually uh, did things together. Um, you know, when it was seen in public, kind of, kind of together. So um, uh, I think he was above reproach. Come on, Sean, if you get up there, really up there, you're above reproach, mate. You know, you you, you kind of, you know, nobody's question. I mean, nobody would look at David Beckham and think, oh, oh we better check him out, whether he was done for shoplifting when he was 12 or something. You know, they, they, you, you get you get kind of, you get above all that. And I think that that's what happened. And, and the, the English upper classes are, are, are daft enough to be taken in by by that sort of uh, uh, um uh, kind of uh, scale of you know getting up so high that uh, nobody's going to question you. I think I think they were taken in by that. You think he was an illusionist? Yes, thing. absolutely. Do you think you've answered this partially? Do you think attitudes have changed towards child abuse that people are more aware of this sort of thing happening these days? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean as I've I've said over and over again, I, I, you know we live in a different world. I mean. Uh, I look at my grandson, uh, you know, being coached uh, at football. Uh, you know, he's nine years old, and and you can just see that the whole culture is totally, they're, they're 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 never with one coach. Uh, there's all sorts of rules about uh, the interaction between the coach and the coaches are wonderful. It must be said, they're absolutely great. Um, but you can see that the sort of thing that happened, and 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 
soccer for your American uh, audience, soccer was a very big source of uh, of uh, abuse. Um, you know, and uh, 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 I've just read the book by um, a guy called Woodward who who. Uh, uh, was abused for, for years and years and years, and he would get taken away uh, every weekend for extra by the coach, and and to a different house, kind of twenty miles away from where his mother lived. And he said that every time he went, he was abused. You know, every time he went, and this was almost every weekend from the age of twelve to, to sixteen or something. Oh. You know, uh, and he's written a book about it, and he, you know, he's deeply damaged as a result. But he's written a book, and he's come out about it. And then they looked at kind of victims uh, because of him, and they found five or six hundred kind of other kids who were victims of various different coaches. You know, and this guy Bannon, Barry Bannon, has been jailed for for for, for years, and uh, there's a whole lot of other cases uh, coming up about this. And this wouldn't happen today. It really wouldn't. I, you wouldn't get somebody in a position like that who would get away with it. I mean, I, I play cricket and, um, and I still do. And, uh, you know, there's, there's 11 people in, in the team. And sometimes we have kids, you know, 12 or 13, 14, just playing with us because, you know, we, I play a bad level of cricket. And nowadays they're not allowed to shower in the same showers as us. And there's kind of signs up or everywhere saying, you know, you, you, children below 16 are not, not to, to kind of uh, shower in the same uh, place as, as uh, older, as, as the adults and so on. And, uh, you know, that would be greatly frowned upon and, and so on. And that's a completely different culture than you would have got 20 years ago. So, so at every level, I think it's much like it's, I'm not saying it doesn't still exist or whatever, but it is much less uh, uh, prominent and much more difficult for uh, abusers to get access to these type of institutions. It's more difficult, but when the police put up preventative measures against criminals, they often come up with counter strategies. Do you think there's some of that going on? Uh, I, I, I think it's... I think it's pretty difficult now. I mean, just 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 as I said from those examples I gave, um, uh, you know, you, you'd have to kind of work it out much more, kind of uh, planned. Um, you know, it would have to be, uh, uh, you know, a much more difficult operation to plan out how you were going to abuse children. I, it, it, you know, you'd have to. Uh, permeate uh, uh, organization uh, you know at, at a high level you'd have to get around the, uh, the the checks of police records and stuff it 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 you know it i'm sure it's possible and it's feasible but honestly the scale of what went on uh you know it at every level and and i think it's interesting that, that almost whatever institution you name this sort of stuff went on whether it's sports whether it's uh, you know various other leisure you know uh, scouts or whatever thanks for watching the podcast here's a word from our sponsor atlas vpn right now i'm going to change my phone so that i am registered out of america let's go with dallas texas shall we just like that i can now access everything online that our american friends can access, whereas previously I was blocked. 
And we've got the best VPN deal on the market. Enjoy the most affordable online protection for just $1.83 a month, which is just over a pound. And three months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect unlimited devices. Atlas VPN protects all your devices with a single subscription. You can grab this summer deal now because Atlas VPN Premium is just $1.83 a month. Plus three months extra. And with a 30-day money-back guarantee, protect your privacy and get many benefits of Atlas VPN for the ridiculously low price. You can take this deal by clicking the link in the video description below on YouTube. Be quick as it's a limited time offer. Thanks for checking out our sponsor, Back to the Podcast. Uh, whether it's uh, children's homes, uh, whether it's kind of schools, uh, you know, boarding schools, you know, all these institutions kind of have had, you know, we could spend all day talking about stories from all those institutions. And nowadays, I think that those institutions are largely protected. Our research has led us to believe it's moved onto the internet. Uh, yes, no, that that's absolutely right. Of course, of course, it's moved onto the internet. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, that is uh, an area that needs much greater policing, as we know, and much greater uh, uh, control. Um, um, it is more difficult, of course, because the internet is you know, virtual and, and then getting to meet the kids. I mean, there was a terrible case a couple of years ago of this child who was, uh, groomed online and then met the, met the, uh, perpetrator and was murdered. Um, you know, and, and that does happen, but it's, uh, and, and there's all sorts of cases of, you know, kids basically being told to take their clothes off kind of uh online you know and 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 so on and then they are being filmed and whatever and blackmailed or whatever of course there is all that sort of thing um and parents need to be on their guard about that but uh fortunately it is more difficult i mean it just contrasts this uh sean with the idea that you know if you have 50 kids in a children's home all together with kind of maybe eight or ten staff and maybe two or three staff at night and whatever and you know that access is you know it is far easier than kind of grooming kids kind of online and and finding the kids and whatever so uh it is much more difficult of course it has migrated online but it's it it is fortunately much more difficult than it would be just if you're meeting kids were several a unique case, or were there many sexual predators targeting the Kerr homes back then? Oh, there were there were there was a whole uh, host of people who. I mean, there, you know, I think there's several hundred predators have been actually uh, jailed, and God knows how many others there were. So, I mean, it was it was it was it was widespread. Um, there are some links between some of them, but as I suggest, I don't think it's all about paedophile rings. I think it's more about kind of uh, individuals targeting these homes and then uh, and then maybe linking up sometimes um, uh, with each other. But um, uh, uh, you know, they, it, it was a it was difficult. Uh, to find institutions that hadn't had some sort of record of of uh, abuse, you know the, the, that the more you 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 found, the more uh, there there were cases that that would uh, come. I mean, I've, certainly the police investigations that 
I list in my book, um, you know, resulted in lots and lots of prosecutions and lots of those were successful. Of course, sometimes you just couldn't get the prosecutions uh, to be successful. You didn't have enough evidence or whatever, but they did prosecute a lot of people. So in the 1970s, if a child reported abuse, could you give us a step-by-step account of what would happen next? Well, that, uh, the problem uh, with that is who would they report it to um, and who would be likely to, to, to believe them. Um, and I do think that it would have been very difficult for a 14-year-old child in a children's home to walk into a police station and say that, you know, so-and-so has abused me. I just think that uh, they would have said, uh, yes, laddie, <laughs> uh, that's all very well but uh, it's your word against his and um, you know be a good lad and um, uh, uh, go back home you know um, social workers more likely they might have done something but again uh, there was an institutional pressures there uh, that would uh, mean that they wouldn't necessarily want the hassle of, of kind of dealing with it uh, obviously, they couldn't go to the, the home themselves, or may they might may go to the boss of the home. But uh, again, so there was just not a culture of kids being believed in a way that is completely different fifty years on. And and I can't emphasize that uh, uh, enough. That that nowadays we would just, you know, the the kid would much more likely be listened to. Not always, not kind of hundred uh, percent. Uh, you know, sometimes not reflecting the seriousness of what goes on and so on. But by and large, uh, it would be a different story. How important has the media's role been in exposing child abuse in co-homes? I I think very, I I think, you know, without uh, media coverage, without uh, the readiness of of some newspapers to, to go down that line, and importantly enough to report stories that then kind of get other people coming forward. Uh, and I worry about this because, uh, you know, the resources for media investigations are much less these days. Um, you know, newspapers are, are, are dying. They're being replaced by the Internet. Uh, there are some investigative websites on the Internet, but, you know, they're fairly poorly resourced. I think one big loss in the UK and in the US is the sort of good local newspaper which, which keeps an eye on things where the reporters go to the local uh, council meetings and so on and find out what's going on and they have contacts and that, all that's gone. That's just gone. I mean, the, uh, so uh, one of the important aspects of that is if you hear of somebody uh, or, or, or some case of abuse in some home somewhere, there might then other people read about it and then come forward and so on and, that's much less likely to happen today. So, uh, you know, the media is much diminished in this regard. And that the, the media is an important part of the safeguarding of uh, the kids and, and these institutions. And, and unfortunately, uh, um, you know, because of uh, the, the internet, because of newspaper sales declining, because of uh, they no longer have advertising in the newspapers and so on, um, we see much, much less uh, uh, potential for those stories to come to light. Why do you think someone like Savile got away with it until he died versus someone like 
Gary Glitter, who got busted. And lots of other uh, people who got blasted. Just the sheer scale. The fact that he was said to Jimmy Savile, the fact that he was friends with uh, people in royalty, he was too big to topple. And I think that's that there's a lesson to be learned there. Nobody should be too big to topple. But but uh uh you know, he 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 was such an important uh part of the entertainment industry he 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 knew so many people um he was nasty you know uh, people who had personal dealings with him say he was very nasty you know he was he was you know his public persona was not his real persona um uh, you know he was rich uh you know he drove around in rolls royces and stuff he was a do-gooder so people say, oh, Jimmy, so you can't believe that. So he had everything going for him to stop this, as well as, the, uh, as we mentioned before, the lawyers uh, in newspapers who would be reluctant to go for him. So, so that, that in every respect, he was in a perfect position to do what he did. Do you think the astronomical amount of money raised for charity insulated him? That was another factor. Uh, uh, all of it, as I say, he was a do-gooder, you know, and... Uh, uh, if you set out to be an abuser, uh, you'd probably set out to do what Jimmy Savile did, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd say, well, I'll become a famous TV personality. I'll, I'll do all this thing for children's hospitals and whatever. I mean, he did it all brilliantly. You have to, you, you know, you almost have to admire how clever he was in his, in his uh, predation, uh, you know, cho- choosing children's hospitals, kind of being a a humble porter, you know, uh, as we mentioned before, kind of which gave him access. I mean, he did everything right. And then having, you know, friends at the, 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 the high places. Um, uh, you know, he, 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 he thought it out. He was not stupid. He, it's not a coincidence, you know, of all these things he did. It was all very well thought out. Just as, you know, my humble care worker in a children's home who who does it thought it out of how do I get access to kids. He thought it out as well, and he just thought it out at a much higher level. So regarding the people that you interviewed in prison, did you follow up and see if any reoffended? I didn't, no. I did get some uh, letters from, from two or three of them afterwards, uh, and it really seemed that they, they were rehabilitated. Um, I no. I mean, obviously, I can't follow up whether what they did in private, um, but uh, certainly, as, as you know, certainly the ones I followed up or I got letters from, I, I genuinely believe had, had uh, been rehabilitated. I think that's important to, to, to note that. I mean, some people are, are not kind of possible to rehabilitate and will just uh, uh, reoffend and, and whatever, but. Uh, they wouldn't have had the opportunity anymore. Uh, you know, they, they they came out of prison to a different world where, you know, there were uh, already kind of safeguarding was kind of much higher up the agenda. Um, you know, it, it, they would have had a criminal record. That was a new thing of people's criminal records being checked. That all came out of these scandals. So uh, they would not, you know, they would not easily have access. So I would think that, you know, they, they, their offending uh, was very likely to have stopped. The public seemed to be irate over sentence lengths for paedophiles. For example, in America, under three strikes laws, you got people doing life for marijuana possession. 
And then you see Catholic priests come in with their fancy lawyers. They get probation or they get a couple of years, slap on the wrist. Do you think sentence lengths need to be reassessed for pedophiles? Or do you believe that alternatives such as chemical castration should be examined? Um, of, of course, we did do chemical ca- uh, sort of uh, castration famously in the 1950s. and uh, Turing was... Uh, uh, who invented computers was was uh, had to take uh, pills to to uh, reduce his homosexuality. So uh, we've been down that path. I don't think that's an effective, uh, uh, really, an effective uh, mass treatment. It might be in certain circumstances, but only if it's uh, uh, voluntary. I do think that uh, you know sentences should reflect uh, the extreme nature of these uh, crimes on a case by case basis. Um, but uh, yes, I think there have been some some uh, uh, cases which have not been, you know, uh, got the sentences they deserve, um, and it's 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 easy to dismiss. As I said earlier, I mean, it's easy to dismiss. Oh, these victims; these are people who who you know are victims who are not really worthy of you know, and um, they're. Their stories may or may not be true. We don't really want to kind of uh, uh, impose huge sentences on these very respectable people, you know. So I think all that is completely wrong. Um, and uh, uh, you know, these are serious matters. Even if they're historic, they need to be uh, investigated, and it's right that they are. As we get near the end of this interview, then any thoughts on Prince Andrew's predicament? Um, uh, I think uh, Prince Andrew gave a, 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 a fantastic uh, example of how not to do a media interview <laughs> um, and uh, uh, suffered as a result. Uh, I think it's all part of the same thing, isn't it? That, I mean, we don't know if Prince Andrew, uh, um, what precisely he's got up to. And, uh, you know, one obviously can't speculate for legal reasons. Um, but he's certainly associated uh, with some very dodgy characters, um, was very foolish, um, has ruined his own life as a, as a, as a result, because I'm sure he's not happy of being an ex-prince. Uh, we lost two princes last year. It was pretty amazing, really, <laughs> with Harry disappearing as well. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he... He did precisely what you mustn't do in an interview, which which he 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 didn't actually repent. I mean, he gave this extraordinary answer when he said, well, "Do you regret meeting Jeffrey Epstein?" And he said, "Well, I, I you know he was very interesting. I I learned a lot from Jeffrey Epstein." And I mean, he didn't actually say I would regret all this. Didn't he say it was quite beneficial? Like, yes, connected me with some people. It was quite yes. beneficial. No, it was positive <laughs> it was actually. Kind of, yeah, you know. <laughs> And you think, you think just the sheer, you know, whatever he has done or hasn't done, uh, uh, it just demonstrated the sheer arrogance and, and it, it, it toppled him. I mean, again, the media kind of wonderful uh, uh, in that role in the fact that, you know, he thought he could outdo the media. He thought that he could uh, kind of get the better of them by, by uh, uh, giving an interview and, and hadn't thought through the consequences of it. Um, so, 
you know, and we've watched, you know, the uh, Epstein fall apart and Weinstein fall apart, and, or Weinstein, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, we've watched uh, several of these characters kind of uh, come to grief, and 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 I think that's, uh, 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 I think that shows there is some justice in the world. I, I think um, Prince Andrew kind of uh, essentially falling on his sword as a result of that interview uh, is well merited. I mean, you know, clearly you could see that Epstein kind of from a mile off was a dodgy character. You know, it, it was just not something that a prince should be seen kind of uh, talking to in the park. And clearly, I think Epstein filmed that, didn't he? Or got his uh, mates to film the two of them talking in the park because it was advantageous to Epstein to be seen with a prince. But uh, I, I, I just extraordinary that it, it does highlight what we've been talking about to some extent is the arrogance of the, the fact that you get above you know, the same with Jimmy Savile. You know, you get to such a high level, you just think, I'm untouchable. And and Prince Andrew thinks he was born to it. And, and uh, uh, you know, his reputation has collapsed as a result. Who do you think is more likely to end up on American soil answering questions posed by the authorities, Prince Andrew or Julian Assange? Uh, sadly, Julian Assange, who, who uh, I... I uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't particularly like as a human being, but I think he did some good things in releasing information that we ought to know about and some shocking kind of uh, military actions by uh, the American uh, Americans. And, uh, and but, you know, he's a little man with them um, who has uh, angered the establishment and Prince Andrew is an establishment man who uh, uh, is protected as a result. So... I don't think that Prince Andrew will be uh, 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 hopping on to uh, any flights across to New York in the near future. Uh, I think Julian Assange might get dragged there, unfortunately, and I, I worry for him. We've interviewed a lot of people who've been in prison, and hearing their entire life stories, a lot of it started with childhood abuse. We've got a lot of people watching this video now on YouTube who have been abused. In conclusion, and I'm sure they're inspired by the work you've done, and um, you know the research and and getting stories out there to make changes in the system. In conclusion, what do you say to those people watching this video? I think the most important thing, and I've emphasised this all the way through, is is openness. And both, you know, gosh, if you've been the victim of abuse, I can't give you. You know, I, it, it's arrogant for me to give you any advice, but I do think disclosure to to your family to friends you are not you are not culpable you are not guilty you know if you're uh, an underage victim of an adult you are by definition a victim you you know even if you enjoyed the sexual experience which is sometimes the, the you know uh, sometimes uh, what happens uh, i think it's very important uh, to be open uh, to uh, be able to disclose to whoever it might be, you know, it might be somebody professional or whatever, but to talk about it. And, and the minute you start talking about it, it does, you know, by in in general, always help. Um, and it might help prevent uh, other people being abused in the same situation if if uh, the institutions that exist or the people is the the, people, the perpetrators still at large or whatever. Um, and it's secrecy. It's secrecy. Why? Why is the one thing that is almost common to every abuse 
uh, situation, which is that the perpetrator will say, uh, look, um, this is our little secret. You know, don't tell anyone. You know, it's just... Or they might say that kind of nicely, or they might say it, if you reveal this, you know, I'll come and, you know, uh, attack your parents or your brother or whatever. I'll, I'll you know, I'll make sure you, you, you get punished or whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll use my authority to destroy you or whatever. So they can do it either in a kindly way, a little secret, or they can do it by in a threatening way. But whatever, that is only in their interest. It's never in the interest of the victim to, to, to keep on eyes. So, Openness, openness of institutions, openness of, of uh, you know, disclosure of what's happened, of course, in, with uh, anonymity uh, guaranteed. Uh, I think that is the, the greatest weapon against uh, this sort of uh, uh, abuse. A lot of people watching this are going to want to reach out to you, contact you and uh, go on your social media. We're going to put all those links in the description box could you just tell people your preferred method of contact and what social media are available on? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'd use Twitter much more than Facebook. I don't really like Facebook enormously. So Twitter is a great way to uh, get hold of me or through my website, which is www.christianwalmart.co.uk. And links are down there also to Christian's book, ebook only. Um, we're going to have a discussion, though, about trying to get it available in multiple formats in the future. So if you have enjoyed watching this video, please let us know in the comments section below. Huge thank you to all of the new subscribers. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner. Huge thank you to people who've donated so we can get out on the road with James, our cameraman, Joe, our sound engineer, and film these things professionally and bring it to you at this level. Really appreciate all of your support. And um, thank you very much, Christian. You've been very generous with your time. and It's been absolutely fascinating. And we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it greatly. And uh, I hope it proves useful to some people. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs>
quote from the book. Mr. Brandrit, I do not see you as a malicious criminal, sighed the judge. But why, oh why, do you continue to use your God-given talent in this way? I just can't help myself, Your Honor. It's like an addiction, I grinned. Available worldwide on Amazon, link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor.